It's time for another edition of Mets Musings. Hi, this is Ron Darling. Uh, this is Skip Lockwood. Hi, I'm Ron Swoboda of the 69 New York Mets, and you're listening to Mets Musings with Gary Mack. Now it's time for some New York Mets baseball talk. Here's Gary Mack bringing you the latest news and analysis from Mets Nation and the world of baseball on another edition of Mets Musings. Hello and welcome to another edition of Mets Musings. Hope you all had a good week out there, better than the Mets had. A little bit below 500 as they went two and three on the week. They took two out of three on the weekend against the Nationals as Jacob DeGrom pitched on Friday night and was spectacular. Spectacular. He was uh, 15 Ks, pitched a complete game shutout. He was just wonderful in that game. They even got him some runs, but they should have saved it for his next game. Uh, Nimmo had a big night at the plate, a couple of hits, a home run. Uh, Really, uh, Mets looked good. Didn't fare as well the next day for Stroman, who just didn't have it. He was shelled by the Nationals as he lost 7-1, to one, and they were hitting him all over the place. Uh, so we'll see if what we saw in the beginning of the season was the real Marcus Stroman, or is this closer to the truth? Uh, I think it's in the middle somewhere. Let's see. Tejon Walker was excellent again as he and the bullpen spun yet another shutout to take the rubber game of the National Series for nothing. Uh, he, he just pitched brilliantly, and he's been the big surprise so far of the season. The way he's pitched, pitched very well. And uh, look, the starting pitching was great this week. Uh, they were off Monday, the Mets, and then the Red Sox came into town, and David Peterson pitched, and he looked very good, but lost the game 2-1. to one. And then it was DeGrom's turn again, and history repeated itself. The Mets just don't hit for DeGrom. In fact, it's getting to the point that the Mets don't hit for any of their pitches. They just don't hit, period. It may be time for some changes. This team cannot hit the baseball. They consistently strike out. Alonzo struck out, I think, six consecutive times. This guy either strikes out or hits a home run. I mean, there's no in between. Uh, He's got to learn. He's got to go back to hitting to the opposite field. Conforto's still in a slump, though. He showed some signs. He had a couple of hits on the homestand, but he too has got to go to the opposite field. Lindor, they spent all that money on Lindor. He's hitting 200. Now, I know it could be the change in the leagues, but, you know, um, then, uh, then experts tell you, well, that doesn't really matter nowadays because they have interleague play and everything. Whatever it is, is it the big contract? He's not hitting at all, and he's trying to – the other night, he tried to take a pitch on the outside corner and pull it, 
And his butt was out, his his hands were, oh, it was, it was an awful swing. Uh, he, too, has got to learn to go to the opposite field, use the whole field. They're putting it, McNeil keeps hitting into the shift. He's not hitting either. Smith isn't hitting. And, you know, if he's not hitting, he can't be out there because he's a big liability in left field. Even though he's worked on it and gotten better, Man, I, I, you know, there were a couple of plays in, in uh, one in particular in the Red Sox series where he just looked awful out there. So, really, if he's not hitting, he's he's nothing but a liability. Um, same thing with Alonzo. I'd sit him down. I'd sit him all down. <laughs> I, I mean it. I, I mean it. I'd sit the whole darn team that's not hitting down except for Nimmo who, if he doesn't hit, he still gets on base. They can't score a run with men on base. First and second the other night, one out or nobody out, couldn't get him, nobody out, couldn't get him in, strike out by Alonzo. Alonzo shouldn't be hitting third right now. Either put him back in second where he hit last year or put him eighth. He, he He's too... Much of an easy out, just throwing breaking stuff. Can't hit the breaking ball. Uh, Lindor shouldn't be hitting uh, second either. I, I, I don't know where you put these guys. You can't have everybody hitting eighth, but that's the way we've got like six or seven, eight-place hitters right now. They need to do shake it up a little bit. In the first place, McCann... Needs a, a day or two off. Uh, Lindor needs a day or two off. Uh, you know, McNeil, I, I don't know what to say. Alonzo needs a day or two off. Smith needs a day or two off. Take them out. I mean, they're killing this team. Killing it completely. And, uh, you know, they, so they get great pitching. Even the bullpens look better. But they can't come back in a game. Can't come back at all because they can't hit. And then not hitting the breaking stuff. And teams pick up on that. They're not going to throw them fastballs. They're going to throw them breaking stuff. I get a kick every time Gary Cohen says, well, at least Alonzo isn't chasing like he used to. Are you kidding me? He looks worse this year than he does the other years. This is a guy that averages 183 strikeouts. According to baseball reference on his uh, 162 game average. Can't have that. That's ridiculous. He should be fined every time he strikes out. Fine him a thousand bucks every time he strikes out. You'll see him cut down on his swing and uh, be more selective with his pitches. He's swinging at stuff that's four feet outside. Can't have that. And again, they hit everything into the shift instead of bunting the ball the other way, trying to hit the ball the other day, the other way. The other, uh, the other game, Conforto got a nice double down the. Left field line. It was an excuse me hit, but he hit it 
swung a little late, made good contact. They don't make contact, these guys. You know, hitting's not, it's not easy, but it's not that difficult either. You see the ball, you hit the ball. I I think the problem is these guys think too much. They have all this natural ability, and they're up there thinking, and then they start to press, and that's a bad combination, a bad combination. Just get up there and swing the bat. See the ball, hit the ball. Do that, and hopefully your bats will come around. Otherwise, you're going to cost some people's jobs. You can't get rid of the whole team. So you have to get rid of the the hitting coach, or you have to get rid of the manager, or both. I have to tell you, I'm not impressed with anybody on this coaching staff at all. Just does not. It's dead. It's it's a dead team. They don't. There's no. I, I don't know what you you would call it. Not impressed with Rojas at all. Some of his moves make you scratch your head, and I know it's up to the players to deliver. But I don't. I can't put my finger on it. They just look dead. And when 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 a team looks dead, it's usually the manager that goes. Um, and the way they're hitting, it's going to be the hitting coach soon that goes. So uh, we'll see what what happens. But they have to do something because I know it's nineteen games in and and all of that. But uh, and they're not far out of the lead because the whole division stinks. Nobody in the division, but somebody's going to get hot. And once you get a team hot that starts running away with it, they're going to be hard to catch. Uh, The Mets and the Yankees will soon be able to increase their capacity for fans from 20% to, uh, what is it now, 33%. Uh, It's been 20% since opening day. As of May 19th, they will allow to increase to 33%, which for the Mets would mean roughly 14,000 people can go to the game. However, you see, this is New York, New York State. There's always a gimmick. There's always a twist. There's always a way of gotcha. There's always a way that they try to screw you in this state. Believe me, I've lived here my whole life. So, unless they change the other rule, the six-foot outdoor, why, I don't know. You're outdoors. You have to be vaccinated or or uh, have passed the test to go to the game. The six-foot outdoor social distancing rule in New York is lessened. The Mets would only be able to raise capacity to 22% while still maintaining social distancing between pods. 
Yes. We we're pod people now in this country and in this state of New York, you know. And we know why Cuomo's doing this because his butt is in a sling with all of this sexual uh, harassment and uh, the uh, the the murder of the um, senior citizens with his and then hiding the statistics on covert and trying to do all that all the time while his uh his staff is writing a book for him <laughs> which is illegal and he makes millions of dollars off of this book everybody thinks he's wonderful i i don't want to get into that all that i've known i, I i've been in new york my whole life I grew up in Queens with his father as the Queensborough president. I grew up with his father as governor, now him with governor. None of this is surprising to me, believe me. Believe me. None of this is surprising. But So he increased the capacity, but we'll see if they really can sell 14,000 tickets. Uh or not. At this point, it's ridiculous. If you have to be vaccinated to get into the game, then I, I don't see, you know, Texas Rangers had a full house. 40,000 people, 41,000 people. No big super spreader there. Everybody's fine. So it's time to get back to normal in this country. All right, we got a two Two great guests this week, and we're going to break down the upcoming uh, Mets trip to Philadelphia this weekend, and and then I've got a great author, and they're right back to back, and you're going to love these interviews, so stay tuned for that, and they'll be coming up right after these messages. <laughs> Five one six six one nine six three four one. That is the comment voicemail hotline. If you'd like to be a part of the show and drop us a line, leave us a comment or a voicemail question, anything at all, call that number five one six six one nine six three four one, or go to metsmusings.com and click on that widget in the middle of the screen, and that's a speak pipe, and you can leave a voicemail right through your computer through your computer's microphone. Or if you prefer to do things the old-fashioned way, send us an email at metsmusings at gmail.com. The Facebook page is facebook.com slash groups slash metsmusings. And uh, if you'd uh, like to help out the show, check out our Patreon page. Check out the campaign at patreon.com slash metsmusings. Well, the Mets are going to hit the road and go down the road to Philadelphia. And to talk about the Philadelphia Phillies is my good friend and co-host of the Baseball Talk radio show who does a great podcast called Fighting Phillies, Phillies Talk, 
Rich Baxter. Rich, welcome back to Mets Musings. Great to be back, Gary. Uh, it's like a home away from home. I'm, I'm making myself comfortable <laughs> in the chair over here. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> well, Rich, I, I appreciate you taking your time. I'm not going to hold you long because we've got a, a great show this week, actually, because David Grell is also going to be on with you. So uh, terrific show. Uh, but, uh, Rich, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Phillies and find out the Mets have played them uh, a few times already have not had great success. Um, I guess the season series is what two and three, something like that so far uh, for the Mets, three and two for the Phillies. But uh, as we speak and as we record this, the Phillies and the Mets are tied atop the NL East. Didn't really expect that to happen uh, this early in the season. No, really, it's all bunched up in the NL East, uh, Phillies, Mets, Marlins, <laughs> the whole gamut. Uh, it's amazing. So uh, the Phillies uh, got off to a good start. Then they kind of struggled. Now they seem to be playing pretty good ball again. Um, Reese Hoskins is, has come alive lately. He's been... Uh, hitting some home runs, driving in runs. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Hoskins has been uh, not carrying the Phillies, but he has woke up, so to speak. And uh, so glad to see it for him because he struggled during spring training. He had a kind of a poor year last year, in my opinion. Anyway, uh, my co-host on Phillies talk might have an issue with that, but um yeah, I, I think he's rebounded quite well. Uh, he needs to have a good season here. And so far, he's been improved. So uh, it's been helping the Phillies. They're 500 so far. As we go into play, um, they'll be on uh, playing the um, Mets this week, as you said. And they have an intense rivalry again, uh, seems like. Yeah, it it. Uh, it's going to heat up a little bit, I hope, and uh, especially with Zach Wheeler back there. And uh, Zach's been pitching pretty good for you guys. Yeah, he has. He's been um, very uh, dependable, so to speak, as the uh, young season here has unfolded uh, between him and Aaron Nola. They hope those two guys can uh, anchor this starting staff and. Um, give us some victories. Only thing that have been an issue so far has been the bullpen, of course, and that's been biting the Phillies here and there, costing them a couple games already this season. And you can't get those losses back games that you're supposed to win, supposed to put a team away and your bullpen blows it for you. And I'm sure the Mets have had the same experiences this year. It's, (laughs) it's bad. Yeah, the bullpen uh, is uh, the weak link on this team, though. Um, we saw a couple of good performances by a couple of young guys, so maybe, maybe, maybe they'll round into shape uh, a little bit. Uh, the other night against the Cubs, though, the Mets got hit all over the place. But, uh, uh, you know, some bright spots. Uh, Sean Reed Foley came in. 
Uh, they called him up. They got him, I believe, from Tampa in the uh, Lucas Duda deal, I believe. Uh, and he looked awesome. He did uh, nine, uh, six or nine up, nine down. Um, three innings he pitched, dominating baseball, really looked good. But uh, for the most part, the bullpen has looked shaky at times. And I guess that's a problem all over baseball. Yeah, it's not unique to just uh, the Mets and the Phillies. But as you said, yeah, I'd love to see Zach Wheeler win 20 games this year. He's off to a one and two start. To give uh, the Mets musings listeners a little update on him, currently he's a 3.80 ERA with uh, four games that he's started so far. But um, yeah, he'll be pitching against um, the Cardinals, uh, perhaps during that season's or series rather. So I'm not so sure he may be facing the Mets unless um, a rain out or something like that happens. But uh, It'll be interesting to see that rivalry with, uh, you know, another star pitcher, so to speak, going up against his four former team. Mm-hmm. And just for those that know, uh, Rich and I are recording this uh, a little bit early because we do a show on Sunday morning. And while I had Rich, I figured I would uh, get his input uh, into the Phillies so we could put it on this week's um, it's musings. So, uh, Rich, uh, the other starters that make up the rotation, um, not as good, uh, have struggled a little bit. But uh, Chase Anderson has been uh, good. I don't, I don't know. I don't think he's got any wins yet, but he's pitched pretty well for the Phillies so far. Yeah, he's kept him in ball games so far. Uh, Thirty-three years of age. Um, Zero and two on the season with a 4.15 ERA started three games so far. So he's, he's going to be a good fifth starter for the Phillies and uh, surprise on the team so far has been uh, the reemergence of Zach Eflin. Uh, he's one and know with a 2.77 ERA in four games. He has been pitching very well for the Phillies and, um, has bounced back. You know, I, I often wonder to myself, how much longer are the Phillies going to stay with a guy like Zach Eflin? He's been on the team for the past couple of years and has had mixed success, mainly not too much success with the Phillies. Um, but rounding out the starters, of course, um, what you would term as the ace of the team, Aaron Nola, two and one with a 2.84 ERA. He's been giving up the long ball, though. The Phillies rallied back the other night. Um, the game was tied, gave up a long ball, but the Phillies uh, ended up pulling out a win for him. So, uh, you know, it's give and take. The Phillies offense helping Nola at times and Nola appearing uh, very great at times. But uh, so far, he's been doing well for the team as well. And some of the guys that, that, uh, around the infield that have been contributing, uh, Gene Segura at second base. I believe he's hurt now, though. I don't know if he's on the IL or, uh, but he's coming up under the injury. So, 
uh, who knows what, I don't know what's good, uh, what's hurting him, excuse me. Um, Mickey Moniak, who I think we talked about a couple of years ago when he got drafted and um, was in the minors and, and wasn't exactly panning out so well. And uh, But now he's been called up, he's been with the big team and playing pretty well so far. Did we lose Rich? Yeah, and forgive me, uh, you were coming in a oh. little choppy there. But yeah, Mickey Moniac. Uh, I'm still here. You were coming in a little choppy uh, just oh, in the last. Uh, Mickey uh, Moniac has been uh, uh, playing a little bit better this year. Uh, his his numbers aren't great, but he had a, a big night the other night. I believe it was I saw. And uh, what's the deal with him? Yeah, Moniak, a number one pick from the Phillies. So uh, he, he's been expected to be great first round pick, number one overall back in 2016 for them. Uh, he's got one home run and three RBIs on the season. His batting average hasn't picked up yet, but. He's still young. He's 22. The Phillies are not a team that'll generally bring up a player that young unless they sort of expect great things from him. So, yeah, Moniac's supposed to blossom into this player um, of all-star caliber. So keep your eye on him during the Mets season uh, and series, rather, if um, and the Phillies season if you get a chance to. But, uh, yeah, he's an exciting young player, lefty batter. Um, six, two tall kid, uh, from California and a little side note, a family member of mine, a cousin, good friends with the Moniac family. So, uh, you're listening cause I want some tickets. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and Roman Quinn, uh, I guess they're split time out in center field, the Moniac and Quinn, but man, can he fly that Roman Quinn? Yeah. Yeah. He's got some speed. As does Moniac. Moniac can can wheel around the bases as well. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing more of Moniac. He had a cup of coffee last year with the Phillies, eight games, uh, not enough to really form that much of an opinion on, and he's only up to eight appearances with the Phillies so far this year. Twenty one at bats. Again, you can't really. Uh, form an opinion on him, but uh, I think he's going to be an exciting player uh, of the future. Only 22 years of age, and um, yeah, we'll see if he gets some playing time in the Mets uh, series here. Now, I remember in the other series, Andrew McCutcheon was uh, playing pretty well. Uh, seems to have gotten over his injury. Um, how has he been doing as of late? Yeah, McCutcheon has been surprisingly well um, for a guy that's been in the league as long as he's been in the league. And uh, he's an all-star player, and he knows how to play the game. That's the good thing. Um, last season, of course, uh, not well. But so far this season, uh, doing quite well for the Phillies. Uh, he's got 61 at-bats. 
His batting average uh, is not that great, though. But he's had a few key hits for the Phillies. So uh, I'll be watching him as well. Uh, only one home run for McCutcheon. But again, he's got some intangibles that he's going to bring to this team. He's 34 years of age as of this season. Been in the league for 13 years overall. Former MVP with the Pirates. So, you know, he brings a little experience to this team and to a guy like Moniak, that might be a, a great thing to have, you know, a guy with uh, such experience to learn from. Yeah, he's definitely not the same player he was when he was with the Pirates, but uh, as you say, his experience and, uh, you know, there's, there's still flashes of uh, like the great skill that we've seen before. Um could help this team. Of course, you're loaded behind the plate with JT Real Muto, and um, so it's a pretty good lineup, if you ask me. I mean, you, you got Real Muto, you got Harper, you got Hoskins if he comes around. So the Phillies, uh, the kid at third's been playing pretty good. Um, Phillies could be looking at some good things down the road. Yeah, Real Muto, no longer a youngster. He's uh, 30 years old this season. He did That's get a youngster, that big... Rich. <laughs> he did get That's that. That's a big... baby. <laughs> All right. He did get that huge contract, but, uh, you know, that 30 number is a big, big year for MLB player. Uh, started out the season with uh, nine ribbies. He's got a couple of home runs, 317 batting average. So his game is getting on base. Let Bryce Harper bring him home. Let Reese Hoskins, if he can bring him home and let's see this Phillies offense start to pick up a little bit. They've been pulling the Phillies uh, weight so far, whereas pitching has been letting it down. This offensive lately has been picking it up. And I would say Harper is Harper, right? He's uh, just doing his thing out there. <laughs> yeah. He is curious. He doesn't carry the team on his back. If you watch the Phillies, uh, his war so far is 0.8. So he's, you know, he's doing his own thing, um, but he's not carrying the team. He's got four home runs, eight ribbies so far this year. So he's got some some room to improve, so to speak. And, you know, a guy like that caliber is getting paid all that money. He's got to improve. So, um Interesting that Harper's two years younger than JT Real Muto. He's in his uh, 28 year. It seems like we've seen Harper forever. And of course, he well. came up when he, <laughs> he was 19. So we have seen him for a long time. We have seen him forever. And the thing I like about Harper, I know a lot of people don't like him, but uh, to me, and, and you could probably uh, uh, verify this more, but uh, to me, he. The one thing about Harper is he's a team player. People don't realize that. Um, you watch him when he gets ahead or even when he just scores the game-winning run or something. He's all excited. He He's into it. And, uh, you know, he you could argue he left a team that was maybe a better team. Certainly at the time they were a better team um, in the yeah, Nationals. They won the World Series on the first year yeah. after he left. <laughs> yeah. So um, I I think 
that either he wore out his welcome there or they wore out their welcome towards him. I don't think he was happy there. Uh, he started getting in arguments on the bench, if you remember. Philadelphia, he seems like a different person. Uh, there seems to be no no conflicts or anything like that 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 I know of. I don't know, maybe you know or you, you've seen. Uh, you're more attuned to the Phillies than I am. Uh, but he, but he always look. People love to hate the guy, but you always want him on your team. I I take him in a heartbeat. Yeah, um, no, he's been the perfect team player, the perfect um, guy that the Phillies use as their centerpiece of the team. You know, with promotional type of activities, and he's always touting the Philly fanatic things that he wears for the younger fans. Um, and yeah, he's been a good all around ball player so far for the Phillies. Um, I'd like to see him become great. You know, he is a great player. I'd like to see him hit those kind of numbers that he did in Washington, you know, 50 home runs, that sort of thing. I want him to have a great couple years with Philadelphia and hopefully he still will. Well, there's always that chance and, uh, We'll house to see how it all plays out. So the Mets will play the Phillies three games in Philadelphia starting uh, Friday night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. All night games, it looks like, or relatively night games. Saturday's a little bit earlier, but uh, should be an interesting series. And, Rich, I want to thank you for taking your time and coming on the show this week. Tell the people where they can uh, listen to your show. Thanks very much, Gary. As usual, uh, I'm over at fightinphillies.com. That's uh, without the uh, fighting, without the G, that is, fighting Phillies. And my podcast is Phillies Talk Podcast. Try to get as many uh, shows out as I can each season on the Phillies. And, of course, you can find uh, that show at baseballtalkradio.com. And check out, you can find Mets Musings there, and you can also check out uh, uh, many other fine podcasts. Baseball and Barbecue is there, too. Always got to get my friends in uh, at Baseball and Barbecue. <laughs> yeah. I'm still season. waiting. I'm waiting for COVID, you know, okay, so we can to end, so we can have that nice steak or something. Uh, maybe the guys will send over a steak or some ribs or brisket or something. <laughs> All right. They're talking. Well, Rich, again, thanks very much, and I'll talk to you, and I'll be back right after this. Baseball and BBQ, your place for interesting baseball talk, opinions, and history. Baseball and BBQ, your place for barbecue recipes, tips, and interviews from the world of barbecue. If you like baseball and if you like barbecue, then tune in to Baseball and BBQ. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and BaseballTalkRadio.com. Wouldn't it be great if you could get a Ph.D. in life through baseball? Welcome to Baseball Ph.D., a tour company for your brain. 30 major league teams, 100 places to see. Let's touch them all as we make the road trip of a lifetime. Check out my Twitter page at Mets Musings one 
and check out a Facebook group. It's at facebook.com slash Musings. Go check it out and don't forget to call the hotline. It's 516-619-6341. Joining me this week is a returning guest. His name is David Krell and he's the author of a great new book. And I always get the title wrong. 1962, Baseball in America in the Time of JFK. David Krell, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Gary. Uh, Dave, how did you come about this book, uh, picking 1962 out of the blue, as it were, uh, but picking that year and everything that went with it? Well, you'll recall that I wrote a book about the Brooklyn Dodgers called Our Bums, and that book was born in a writer's workshop at a place called Media Bistro, which is a continuing education school in New York. And when that book was published, I said, gee, no one's ever written about the 62 Mets and 62 Colt 45s in depth. I wonder if there's a book there. So I brought that idea to another workshop taught by the same guy, a literary agent named Ryan Fisher Harbage, a terrific mentor. And he mentored me and said, David, I understand you're a baseball guy. Books with bigger topics get bigger readerships. So think about it. So I came home that night and I started to research 1962. And I knew about the Cuban Missile Crisis. I knew about To Kill a Mockingbird. I knew about John Glenn. I didn't know the 40 or 50 topics and subtopics that I found. And I said, I think there's a way to string these together. And the only way that I could figure out in terms of organizing it coherently, Gary, was to do it by month. And the, the thread, the common thread was the baseball season. So January has a chapter, February has a chapter, and so on. Yeah, and uh, well laid out, and you, you cover it greatly in the way you weave in the historical and uh, what we now call pop culture right uh, events is really quite fascinating and uh of course 62 was the year that the Mets came into existence but also the year of uh, the Houston Cult 45s coming right. into existence to balance out the National League and uh you go into great detail about the the Cult 45s and the Half Heinz just give us a little feel for that well, Gary, I'll let you in on a secret. When the Sabre National Convention was in Houston in 2014, I took a day off from the seminars and the lectures. I hopped in a cab and I went to the University of Houston. And the University of Houston has George Kirksey's archives. Kirksey was a public relations guy who helped the team get off the ground. And you'll, you'll remember that the Houston Buffaloes played for many, many years in Houston. Houston was a great minor league town, but here was an opportunity. Now, what I found was a treasure trove, really. Uh, demographic studies, memos, letters, team newsletters, ownership percentages and breakdowns. And I had never seen anything like this ever uh, in terms of researching a team and having the actual founding documents at your disposal. So I was able to tell the genesis of that Colt 45's team and couple that with the Mets. 
And what I tried to do in the Mets chapter is give you a little slice of all of these different players, whether it's Joe Christopher or Rod Keneal or Chuchu Coleman. It, it would have been unfair of me to just focus on two or three players. And how many times can we talk about Marv Throneberry? I, I wanted to talk about some of the guys that you might not have remembered, like Gene Woodling or Richie Ashburn. We know Richie Ashburn was a terrific ball player. Doesn't really get talked about in terms of the 62 Mets, maybe as an aside. So I wanted people to remember that. And regarding Houston, well, Judge Roy Hofheinz was really the dominant force behind the Astrodome, behind the team. And the book opens with the Houston VIPs shooting guns into the ground as a groundbreaking for what will be the site of the Houston Astrodome in 65. <laughs> yeah, it was fascinating. And and I, I don't think you could do that nowadays. No, <laughs> but... definitely not. <laughs> and, and you talk about a lot of the uh, TV shows of the era as well as uh, fascinating, uh, I guess it's, most of a chapter, if not the whole chapter, about Hanna-Barbera and how they got their start. Uh, just chat about that a little bit. Well, I talked to Joe Barbera's daughter, and she had worked for the company. Hanna-Barbera, that company was the king of animation from the 60s through the 80s. And, of course, the Flintstones, uh, that was a premier show. Uh, that was a cornerstone uh, for the Hanna-Barbera empire. And then you got... Scooby-Doo and uh, Miguel Gorilla and some of the other very famous uh, uh, offerings. But the, the Flintstones is one of the best programs to insert popular culture because you had takeoffs on Tony Curtis or Jimmy Darren or Ann Margaret. Uh, I, I think one of the dance shows, well, Hullabaloo or Shindig, I always get them mixed up, <laughs> but one of them is mentioned on on the uh, on the Flintstones, uh, the the DJ who hosted that show, uh, whose name escapes me right now. But you had some baseball themed episodes as well, and of course the Jetsons came out in '62 also, which just reinforced that pop culture space relationship. Because in the '60s, every time you pick up the newspaper, it's NASA this and NASA that. So that was reflected very heavily as we get into the decade in terms of space being a, a cornerstone of a show like I Dream of Genie or a cornerstone of an episode on Gilligan's Island. My favorite Martian, certainly Star Trek, Lost in Space, they revolved around the space theme. And the Jetsons right. had a kind of a futuristic feel. And when you talk about the Seattle World's Fair and they're talking about what happens, what will happen in the year 2000? What will life be like 20 years from now, 50 years from now? And some predictions were borne out and some weren't, but they're very interesting videos to watch. So you have this wonderful year of progress and futurism and looking forward against an epic baseball season that to this point, I believe had been overlooked. Because you and I have talked about books we've read regarding the 69 Mets. We've read about the 86 Mets. There have been books about the 68 baseball season, the, the first year of Yankee Stadium and the New York Yankees, 1923. Uh, someone wrote a book about 1977. 
I could not believe that this book hadn't been written. And when I, when I got home from that class, the first thing I did was go on Amazon. I said, somebody had to have written this. This, this had to have been covered. I cannot be the first person to figure this out. And I said, gee, people have gone a different way. They, they've covered topics I would want to cover, like the bicentennial year and the baseball season in 76. But 62, for some reason, has been left alone. So to your point, Gary, yes, I combined pop culture with the baseball and also inserted a lot of history. There's JFK, Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, Jackie Kennedy giving a televised tour of the White House, all to combine in this amazing year of progress and optimism for America. It, it certainly was an amazing year when, when you look back at it. Uh, and the way this book is laid out, it's easy to go through it and and uh, to uh, to to go back in time. It's almost like a time machine. It was for me, having lived through it. Thank you. Uh, lots of memories came up, but of course, sixty two, and uh, we've we've spoken in the past, and uh, it was the start of the New York Mets, mm-hmm. and you're uh, very. Uh, uh, in the corner, if you will, of Mrs. Payson, who I think is very neglected in the world of, uh, really in the world of sports, but specifically in baseball. Um, but you you talk about her in this book as you did in the last book, mm-hmm. uh, and and her part in the Mets coming about, as well as Bill Shea and mm-hmm. uh, and of course Casey. Do you think? Sometimes Casey gets lost in the mixture uh, because the team wasn't good. And and in retrospect, when you look back, they were terrible uh, teams. Um, Do you think that hurts Casey a little bit? I don't think so. Casey was hired as a marquee value. Casey had ties to New York, not just the Yankees, but – he had also played for the Brooklyn team. He had managed the Brooklyn team decades before. So to have Casey Stengel, to have part of not just baseball royalty, but New York royalty, I, was a vital factor in getting people to come out to the ballpark. And then you combine that with the Rheingold advertisements and uh, and, and the, the promotions to get people to buy tickets. I think Casey is, is pretty well... Uh, I, I would say valued for lack of a better word in terms of Mets fans and, and what we prize as our history. Payson, not so much because owners are not out in front and we're now almost 60 years after the initial year, the inaugural year of 62. Why she's not in the hall of fame. I don't know why she's not recognized more by the Mets. I don't know. I wish that, I hope that we'll have a statue of Mrs. Payson and and Mr. Shea along with Seaver in the coming years, but uh, that's up to Mr. Cohen. Yes, it it is. And uh, I hope he does as well uh, because they're well-deserved and they should be there. Um, What's interesting in the book is that you do break down 62 Mets that you mentioned a little bit earlier. And 
<laughs> you do mention a lot of a lot of the guys, and I have to say, some of the guys I, I didn't remember. Some of them I remember. Um, I, I give you one, Joe Ginsburg. I remember Joe Ginsburg was on the team as a catcher. For the life of me, I can't ever remember him seeing him play a game. Well, there's Joe Ginsburg and the two pitchers named Bob Miller. Uh, Mil- yeah. Chris Camaro and Gene Woodling and Richie Ashburn and Rod Keneal, who some people thought would be the manager to succeed Casey, that he would be a player's manager. He, he was young enough to bond with players but he was smart enough to gain their respect. And for one reason or another, he was never tapped to be a coach or a manager. And it's a, it's a shame because everything that we've known or read about Casey in terms of the Mets, people will tell you Keneal was Casey's boy. And, and uh, a hot rod Keneal mm-hmm. was... Uh... <sighs> He, he he was a utility guy. He played all over the place, and uh, he, he had a little bit of talent. But uh, he he was um, how would I put it? He was uh, like a younger version of a Phil Garner almost, only without the talent of Phil Garner. <laughs> you know, he was scrappy. He. Uh, uh, was willing to dive and risk his body and everything like that. He was an interesting guy and, uh, um, you know, but uh, you mentioned Marv Thronberry, what we've talked about him plenty of time. Frank Thomas is a guy that you, you mentioned in the book. Uh, talk a little bit about him. Well, yeah, you have Thomas who's overlooked as a slugger when we're talking about the Mets. Thronberry has a pop culture status because of those Miller light commercials in the seventies and eighties. But yeah, Thomas should be talked about more. And the other thing, Gary, as you know, people talk about the Mets in 62, whether it's Thomas or Ashburn or Gene Woodling, these guys were pretty decent ballplayers. They were at the end of their careers. We, we need to say that, but all in all, their bodies of work were pretty respectable. And yet there's this lovable losers label that's stuck to the Mets. And it's been in copy, it's been in books, it's been in documentaries. Well, I talked to a couple of players from that team and they said, there's nothing lovable about losing. We, we didn't go into the locker room happy if we lost. We didn't feel that way. We did our best. We were outclassed. We were outshone, but we did our best. We don't like to lose. No athlete likes to lose. And I think when Gil Hodges took the reins in 68, that feeling was cemented because when the leader says no more lovable loser stuff, I'm, I'm not even going there. I'm not, I'm not even acknowledging that label when a, a reporter mentioned it. That's when it was cemented, but it started then. It's just that they were so bad and Casey was so uh, so much of a character, a character. Some might say a caricature. That that's what people remember about the '62 Mets: the 40 and 120 record, and Ryan Gold beer, and Casey saying "amazing, amazing, 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 amazing." <laughs> well, uh, Casey was hired. Uh, uh, 
is a public relations, I think. He, he was there. Like you said, he was part of New York royalty. He wasn't really there to manage a baseball team. He was there to promote a new franchise in New York, and he did it very well. And uh, and I think the philosophy that George Weiss had, uh, who who doesn't get mentioned a lot easier, but he, either, but he was the first general manager, and his philosophy was to bring a lot of Dodger and ex Dodgers and Giants back to New York, right? Because the fan base knew knew those guys. So that's why he had Gil Hodges, and as you said. A lot of these guys were at the end of their career. And uh, Houston, I believe, went in the opposite direction. They went with a lot of younger type of guys and uh, were more successful earlier years, uh, though the Mets beat them to the World Series yeah. in 69. But um, the, difference, the difference, Gary, is that Houston had the Buffaloes, great minor league organization. That has to fold when the Colt 45s are realized as an entity, when the National League and Major League Baseball say, okay, Houston can have a Major League team, so they can't have a minor league team as well. But Houstonians only had that one team, right? And now they have a different team, but it's still just one team. New York had three teams. Well, two are gone. And Giants and Dodgers fans aren't automatically rooting for the Yankees. So now when the Mets come into being, from people I know personally and whom I've talked with, the 40 and 120 record was not nearly as important as getting to see Koufax and Drysdale and Mays and, and Aaron and Matthews and Adcock and all these wonderful National League players who will, who will now be coming to New York on road trips. So, yeah, nobody expects you to be winning, even breaking even at 500 for an expansion team. Right. But the, the benefit was, okay, not only can we see NL stars, we can see the NL stars that we used to root for. And I think for, for the younger fans out there that don't realize, they didn't have, in 62, we didn't have the baseball coverage that you have now. You had a game of the week, uh, I believe on NBC at the time, um, and uh, you had WOR covered some of the home games and the away games, but there was nothing like there is now. Right. Uh, PIX covered the Yankees' home games and, and road games. The predominant, if you wanted to hear every game, was radio. That right. was still predominant in that time. so uh, And there was no interleague play. So if you wanted to see the stars, you saw them at the All-Star game. Right. Uh, and the World Series. And, and as you said, in 62, it was a big thrill. My mother grew up as a Giant fan. And she would talk to me. Uh, before the match, she talked about Bobby Thompson and, sure. and uh, the home run and how great Willie Mays was. And being a kid in the late 50s, early 60s, to me, Mickey Mantle was the guy. You know, well, right. no, he's Mays isn't as good as Mantle. Mantle was the, the star, you know. 
and then to see these guys, like you said, uh, it was really quite amazing to see this whole different uh, branch of baseball, if you will, right. uh, uh, come into New York and play uh, and play the Mets, and right. uh, uh, they were just—I mean, they were a cast of characters. <laughs> the Mets. Uh, uh, you had Jay Hook. The cerebral, uh, I think he went on to be an engineer. Um, uh, Ken McKenzie, who looked like a professor, right? The left handed relief pitcher, um, a little Al, little Al Jackson, who, uh, up until his passing was really uh, still with the Mets organization. Right, and you also had Vinegar Bend Mizell, who became a congressman. Yeah. (laughs) This was a cast of characters, certainly. But to put the lovable losers label on them, and it stuck for so many years, was really, really unfortunate. I I think, though, the label came more from the fans and – uh, that the, the fans loved them in the early few years, no matter what they did, uh, right. for the reasons that we talked about. Uh, and then, uh, but it started to get thin about '65. I can remember people who thought, you know, when the hell are we going to win? Uh, when are right. we going to get a? You know, we keep promising these young stars, and these guys right. come up and they're bu- uh, busts. You know, even. Uh, uh, Tug McGraw came up in 65, I think, and Swoboda was around that time originally, and they were going to be great, and they didn't uh, pan out. Ed Cranepool was going to be the next Mickey Mantle. Uh, Ed Cranepool turned out to be a, a, a terrific ball player, but never the the big superstar that, uh, that uh, we thought. Now, did you interview... Any of these old Met players? I interviewed, I interviewed a couple of them. As you know, Gary, a lot of them are gone, unfortunately. Yes. But I was yes. able to rely on interviews that I found in press clippings at the Baseball Hall of Fame because every player has a player file. And I spent a few days there going through each and every player, uh, photocopying as fast as I could, and then going on my own to the New York Public Library and tracking down articles from microfilm in the post or the daily news or the New York times. And it, you know, it was a, it was a pretty surprising thing to me because I thought there would be this kind of jingoistic uh, propaganda almost against the Mets where you're talking, making fun of them, mocking them, but the, the sports writers just reported what they wrote. You know, they, that was it. They, they were reporting what they saw. They were reporting what they heard, getting quotes. It was just like any other game, any other team. And it was, I think, a combination maybe of pop culture and myth and lore and the fans saying like they did with Brooklyn, calling them bums until they won. Mm-hmm. And it was the same thing, I think, with the Mets. Yeah. And I think they were the, the cool team in a way. It was, yeah. I, it was cool to be a Met fan. It was yeah. <laughs> uh, strangely enough. Um, well, it was new. Anything that's new is cool. Yeah, Chase Stadium was new. 
Mm-hmm. There's a reason that the Beatles played at Shea and not Dodger Stadium or Wrigley Field or Candlestick Park at the beginning. They played in New York at the beginning because Shea Stadium had this, you know, overwhelming, uh, I, I don't know what the word would be. I, I don't want to say nostalgia because we're talking about the, the Coliseum from, you know, several hundred years ago, but that's what it looked like. And there, there was a, a, a really uh, a sense of progress in the 60s that, oh, isn't it great? We'll be able to use this for soccer and football and baseball. And then by the 80s and 90s, that philosophy had been totally worn out. And now we want to get back to just baseball only ballparks. Right. And that's been the paradigm since the late 80s. But uh, t- to your point, they, they, they were the cool team. It was fun to be a Mets fan. If you talk to Mets fans of the 60s, there was something about it. Even though they were losing, there was something fun about being a Mets fan, knowing that there's always hope. I always joke that, you know, Yankee fans expect to win and Mets fans hope to win. So (laughs) Yankee fans are disappointed when things don't work out. Mets fans always say, well, there's another day. You know, there's another day. And I wasn't at the Polo Grounds in 1962, but I, I bet you dollars to donuts that when people got off the subway, the feeling was this, the same that it is now. When you get off the seven train, there, there's a sense of enthusiasm. There's a sense of boisterousness. And I don't have one foot off the seven train before someone's yelling, let's go Mets. <laughs> you, get off the, you get off the six train in the Bronx and Yankee fans saunter and their chests are out and their heads are high, but they're not really cheering. They just want to get their seat and see the Yankees destroy whatever the competition is. That's what they expect. But Mets fans are, as a lot, are just more hopeful because we have to be. I mean, look at the Genesis. Look at the Genesis. I mean, it's taken years for Seaver to get a statue. That that alone it, it that alone tells you what it's like to be a Mets fan. But in the book, this is chronicled. I, I think um, to your point about Payson, that she was really the the grand dame. She was really the cheerleader to get this team off the ground. Yes, there was William Shea and there were some other folks who were very heavily involved, but her presence and Casey's presence gave it a, a certain oomph. There's a certain X factor. When you see the, the owner of the team kibitzing with the manager before the game because you saw that with Yogi all the time. There are pictures of, of him and he's always smiling when he's talking to Mrs. Pace. You know, it's, it's not like today where everything is so thought out to the penny and, and we have money ball and you know, all these different um, things that I don't think are ruining the game. I think they're enhancing the game, but there was a certain romance to the game before to going to the ballpark. Uh, and there are reasons we can go into at a later date about why that was. You know, I, I, I write for the Sabre Games Project, and I'm looking at the running time for a game. It's 2.13, 2.25. We now, if a game ends in three hours, that's early. But back then, it was a lot different. And, you know, the game, I don't know, you never seemed like you were rushed. Maybe right. because we got to the ballpark early. I don't know. 
um, but never seemed rush. And yet, when they talk about now having a quick game, I'd be like, well, I, I guess because now you pay so much money that right. I don't want to be rushed. <laughs> you know, um, these seven inning double headers is like, what are you crazy? I don't want to go to. Uh, I don't understand what that's about. But uh, part of the fun of doing a book like this, Gary, is going back to uh, maybe not a simpler time, but the game was simpler. I I don't think, you know, people said to me when they heard I was doing this book, hey, Dave, that's great. Last year of innocence, right? No, maybe it wasn't the last year of innocence. Maybe it was the last year of optimism. But it would, if you pick up the paper, if you go to microfilm or ProQuest or newspapers.com from any of those, uh, any any day in 1962, um, there's violence, there's political controversy, there, there are wars going on and so forth. No different than today. But you only had one half hour newscast. You weren't bombarded with news. You had a chance to digest the news. You could go out for lunch. You took an hour for lunch. Nowadays, People, well, not nowadays because of COVID, but before COVID, you would get lunch and bring it back to your desk. It's unheard of to go out of the office for an hour and just talk with people and banter with them. Uh, That's one of the real benefits of going into a, a history book and seeing what was surrounding the Mets and baseball. What were people doing? What were they watching? What were the values? What was the who was in the White House? What were the customs in America at the point? What what was going on in the Supreme Court? What were people watching in the movie theaters when they changed the channel? What were they looking for? And that's that's a time when we only had three networks, mm-hmm. so you had a chance to really absorb things. And I know we're all baseball fans, and it's great if you can get the MLB package. So when the Mets games. And you can watch the Padres games or the Dodgers or the Giants or the Mariners or the Rockies. That's wonderful. But I sense at a certain point we're being overloaded with information. And where are the discussions? Where are the conversations? A lot of it is, well, who's in my fantasy uh, league? Who's on my fantasy team? Did he go one for three? And we're we're losing a, a sense of, I think, something special about the game it's it's no longer a game of community i i couldn't agree with you uh, more it it really uh has changed and but i guess it's changed as america changes you know yeah. he used to have a civil conversation with people about uh oh if you were a met fan and they were a yankee fan and it was a good-natured now people are shooting one another over that. You know, they get into arguments or fights. It's 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 kind of crazy, but I guess that's the world we live in. Or maybe I've just gotten so old. Well, and, and, but back then, before, before the expansion, before the expansion in 62 and the year before in 61 with the AL, you had 154 games in a season, which meant in an eight-game league, you played every other team 22 times, 11 at home, 11 on the road. So if you're a Mets, well, Mets didn't come until later, but if you were a Reds fan, if you were a Phillies fan, if you were a Dodgers fan, you knew the Giants lineup 
as well as you knew your own line. Your own. Yeah. So you could have the, not only could you have civil conversations, you could have thoughtful conversations. How the hell can you keep everyone straight? What do we have? 30 teams? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that is just incredible to me that people are, had me basically an Excel spreadsheet to keep everyone organized. And you don't have, you know, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, this happened in real life. Uh, Marty Adler, who you may have heard of, Marty was a big Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And a story he told me, I actually saw, I actually saw this represented in a show called Brooklyn Bridge. So Brooklyn Bridge was like a Jewish wonder years. It was set in the six in the fifties. Wonder years was in the late sixties. And it revolves around this kid, Alan Silver, who was growing up in Brooklyn in the mid fifties. He was a Dodgers fan. So his friend Benny says, I'm going to stake out Duke Snyder's apartment building. I heard he lives there. And his friends say that he doesn't know what he's talking about, that he got bad information. He's wasting his time. Well, Alan comes over after two days and Benny's been staking out the apartment building. Alan says, we got to go. This, this is enough. Come back. We'll play stickball. You know, let's just, th- this was a loss. Cut your losses. Let's go. And at that moment, Duke Snyder comes out of the building and he gets a con- into a convertible with presumably other other Dodgers. And this is borne out when Alan's eyes go as big as dinner plates and Benny shouts, oh my God, Alan, there are 422 RBIs in that car. They knew the, the tallies. They knew from, from watching the games, from reading the newspaper, these kids knew how many RBIs were, uh, were tallied from three players, four players, whatever it is. And you don't have that today. And it's impossible because the players change uh, teams so often. As Jerry Seinfeld says, at a certain point, you're rooting for laundry. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, you know, baseball cards was another thing. We would study the back of the baseball cards. And and now these kids uh, went to a card show and these kids are buying cards and they're putting them into these page protectors and into an album they go. And, uh, you know, God knows if they ever look at them again or if they just store them away for 20 years. We used to play games with the cards. Uh, part, part of the fun of uh, doing this book was going back to my baseball card collecting roots when I was 10, 11 years old, and you spread out on the floor all the teams and you get, here are your Dodgers, here are the Reds, here are the Giants, the Mets, Yankees, etc. And you always put the Hall of Famer, the, the ones you knew would be Hall of Famers, you always put them on top, right? So you put a, a Seaver on top, right? You, you put a Don Sutton on top of the Dodgers pile, Seaver on the Mets pile. Well, the same thing, uh, that same skill set happened here because I had a file for every player. Mm. So when I researched at the Hall of Fame, I said, well, here are all my Mets players, here are all my Yankees players, here are all my Giants players, etc." cetera. So you, you can call on those things from childhood and they can serve you pretty well if you're a baseball fan. Yeah, it, it's... Uh, it- it's amazing how much time has changed and and how much uh, our society has changed. But at least this book, for those that uh, you know have lived through it, and for those who haven't, 
you should pick up this book and relive those times because you're never going to see them again. It was a simpler, it was an easier time, and uh, it was it was great having you on again. Thank you, and Gary. Great to talk to you about this wonderful year that uh, was the birth of the Mets and and the Houston franchise and. Uh, you know, for for us Met fans, it was the dec- starting the decline of the Yankees <laughs> the right. dynasty. So that made it a good year as well. <laughs> but uh, uh, David, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, looking forward to uh, your next book. Uh, tell us where folks can get this book when it's coming out. Sure, uh, this book will be released May first. You can get it on pre-order by Amazon, Barnes and Noble's website and the University of Nebraska Press's website. Now, if you buy it through UNP, there'll be a 40% discount on baseball books through May 31st. So I would encourage people to buy books by some other authors, some wonderful topics, uh, Dave Parker, Tony Lazeri, Ty Cobb, Joe Cronin, Connie Mack. Uh, just, UNP has a great baseball roster so i would encourage people to go to that website and check it out and david's terrific book so everybody go pick it up uh, and and david thanks again for taking the time out of your schedule and coming on the show thank you gary take care and i'll be back right after this 516-619-6341 that is the comment voicemail hotline if you'd like to be a part of the show and uh, drop us a line leave us a comment or a voicemail question anything at all call that number 516-619-6341 or go to metsmusies.com and click on that widget in the middle of the screen and that's a speak pipe and you can leave a voicemail right through your computer through your computer's microphone or if you prefer to do things the old-fashioned way send us an email at metsmusings at gmail.com. The Facebook page is facebook.com slash groups slash metsmusings. And uh, if you'd uh, like to help out the show, check out our Patreon page. Check out the campaign at patreon.com slash metsmusings. going to wrap it up for this week's show. I want to thank my guests, Rich Baxter and David Krell, both of them for taking time out of their busy schedules to be on tonight. Give us a, a, a scouting rich for giving us a scouting report on the Philadelphia Phillies and David Krell on his great new book. So go check that out. Baseball in America, 1962 Baseball in America in the time of JFK. I also want to thank you all for listening to the show and watching. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you watch or listen to the show. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, uh, Outbox, CastBox, uh, uh, YouTube, wherever you may watch 
or listen to the show, please hit that subscribe button, hit that bell on YouTube. uh, So you'll be notified of every new episode and you can help us grow the community and expand to new listeners. So please, it's very important to hit you uh, that you hit that subscribe button. And if you'd like to donate to the show, go to patreon.com forward slash Mets musings or anchor.fm forward slash Mets musings. And you can donate uh, or support the show uh, through either uh, place. So please, if you uh, love the show and want to help out, please, we appreciate it. Okay, that's it. So until next time, remember to keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go Mets. And I'll see you next time on another edition of Mets Musings. Mm-hmm.